say How is Alexandria victim today? Yes, here on Studios America, we recognize that AOC is almost always the victim. The world is always cracking down on her and her poor outlook on humanity is always, always being crushed by the man. But today, despite our catchy intro, the victimhood claim falls on someone else. And that someone else is Riley Roberts. Yes, poor, poor Riley Roberts, web developer and now official fiance to a crazy person. AOC confirmed the news on Twitter last week. It's true. Thank you for all the well wishes. She also verified the rumor on an Instagram live video where she flashed her fancy new engagement ring. Ooh, wedding bells. Very, very nice. Now, before you go accusing poor AOC of exploiting blood diamond miners, which I knew you were just about to do, she was to clarify quickly that the ring is a zero emission ring, as if that means a thing. And it's made with recycled gold. Now, as anyone who with more than two brain cells recognizes all gold that isn't straight out of the ground is recycled gold. Uh, but that's not really important right now. We're here to talk about the victims, specifically Riley Roberts, this poor, poor man. I guarantee he proposed to AOC on the strict grounds that if he didn't, that would be making her the victim. I mean, what are you saying? She's annoying? Are you saying she's not beautiful? What are you saying by not proposing? It's obviously racist to date someone like AOC without the, in the intention eventually of marriage. But whatever the reason, we can be sure that Riley will be continuing to spend his time with AOC being a victim to her victimhood. And that is our really roundabout way of finding out how AOC is a victim today. What do you say? How is Alexandria victim today? Stu does America. We're back from our week-long vacation. Thank you so much for joining us. BlazeTV.com slash Stu is the place to go to subscribe to Blaze TV. Use the promo code Stu to save 10 bucks. It's our inflation discount. We've got the latest in the baby formula crisis with Cato's Gabrielle Beaumont-Smith coming up. You're not going to believe the background on this one. An insane lottery story from Michigan, one of my favorite stories of all time, is going to get the movie treatment. I'll show you that. And we're also going to start by doing primary 2022. Georgia, Pennsylvania, Alabama, and more. Well, you know, if you think AOC is the ultimate victim. Stacey Abrams certainly gives her a run for the money. Uh, Stacey Abrams is running for governor in Georgia. Her primary is tomorrow, and it's, we're going to get into all the details on all these states here in just a second. But I wanted to give you this quick clip. This is this sort of the closing argument for Stacey Abrams in her primary. Tell me how much you like it. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. <laughs> there it was, in case you couldn't understand her blabbering. I am tired of hearing about how we're the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. Did you ever notice that the politicians on the left really despise the places they are from? She went on to blab on about how, well, we're low in, let's see, let me contextualize. When you're number 48 for mental health, when you're number one for maternal mortality, when you have an incarceration rate that's on the rise and wages that are on the decline, then you are not number one in a place to live. Well, no one said it was number one in the place to live, but it's last. I mean, I, they just always despise the places that they're talking about trying to rule over. She'll try to, uh, of course, close the race there in uh, 
in Georgia in a, in a very in a very interesting race. We'll get into that in a second. Let's start over, though, with uh, what happened while I was on vacation, the Pennsylvania primary. Now, we did discuss a little preview of this race right before we went on vacation. And it played out kind of how we talked about it. Um, first of all, John Fetterman is going to be the Senate candidate from the Democrats. Now, he uh, wound up winning about 58.7% of the vote, 26% uh, for Connor Lamb. So really not a close race. I think the only interesting part of the story to me is Fetterman, who is like a, a hoodie socialist. He's wearing gym shorts, he's wearing a hoodie, and he's like a Bernie Sanders guy. So he's like AOC, except ugly white dude in, in a hoodie. That's kind of the shtick there. What's also, though, funny is that Fetterman got in trouble uh, for holding a black jogger at gunpoint. And you might say, that doesn't sound like a funny story. Well, it's certainly not funny to the poor guy who was just jogging. However, this is the thing. And this is the problem when you have crazy, idiotic narratives that invade your politics all the time. We are told over and over and over and over again that whenever an incident like this happens, the only possible cause for it is racism. What happened was, uh, he says at least, Fetterman, that he heard a gunshot, uh, put his kid inside, saw someone running away, chased him down with a shotgun, and held him at gunpoint until the police arrived. And later they found out this guy had nothing to do with it and did not have a weapon. Well, shockingly, I guess now, Pennsylvania Democrats are racist, and I find that to be very, very disturbing. So in case you're ever wondering whether Pennsylvania Democrats are racist, the answer to that, of course, is yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. That's what you are. Now, the other race was kind of the more interesting one. Uh, this was the Republican Senate race. It was a three-way race going in. And let me give you the results as we have them right at this moment, because they're really not final. Mehmet Oz has 418,664 votes. That's good for 31.2% of the vote. Dave McCormick, he's at 417,663 at 31.1%. And Kathy Barnett, who made a really uh, pretty impressive last-minute surge, couldn't quite close the deal there, finished at 24.7%, about seven points back, but still a pretty impressive showing for Kathy Barnett. Now, that's a difference of 1,001 votes out of 1.3 million cast. A few places have it a little bit uh, closer than that, but there are still votes that have not yet been counted. And here's where we stand right here. This is from Steve Kornacki. He says, uh, where things stand now, we're still awaiting the remaining 10 precincts from Allegheny County. There should be a small, maybe 500 vote batch. Then there are roughly 8,000 mail-in ballots scattered across the state. There are perhaps 200 to 300 overseas or military ballots and up to 2,000 provisional ballots, likely fewer. In fact, definitely fewer. Uh, provisional ballots most of the time don't even wind up being utilized. They're there as kind of a backup system if the first vote goes awry. Uh, bottom line is most of the time they're not uh, the whole batch will not be uh, utilized. It's not they're going to be it's going to be like double voting. So it's kind of interesting to see this play out a really, really close race. They are going to have a recount in this race no matter what. The Pennsylvania law says uh, if it's less than half a percent uh, difference, they will go automatically into a recount. So that's going to happen. We're not going to have the winner of this for a while. I'd probably rather be Dr. Oz at this point, but it is close enough that. It's tough to tell who's going to come out of uh, that race. And it's a pretty interesting one. Really, uh, it's going to be bizarre because you're going to have it's going to be bizarre to have a hoodie socialist against Dr. Oz. 
in one in one sense or uh, Fetterman going up against uh, Dave McCormick on the other. So we will get the results of that probably in the next few weeks. But honestly, it's going to take a while for that to be hammered out. Uh, The other part about this I find interesting is I'm very curious to see if the media will celebrate uh, this potential first, a potential glass ceiling being shattered by Dr. Mehmet Oz, who would be the first Muslim senator in the Senate. Will this be the parade with the balloons and the the soft uh, puff piece about his background and how he was able to rise above all the hatred from evil Americans to become a famous television personality and eventually, potentially here, rise to the U.S. Senate? Will we get those huggy, lovey puff pieces coming if Dr. Oz does win the nomination? My guess is uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, let's go over to Georgia. This is coming up tomorrow. Now, there are a bunch of pretty interesting races in Georgia, but the sort of marquee battle is Kemp versus Purdue. And this is the race for governor. Uh, Now, you, of course, will remember Kemp being kind of the face of the Georgia election. He is a guy who said over and over again, Donald Trump doesn't have his facts straight here. This this race was not stolen from him. Uh, this is, we've counted and recounted and recounted again. And the bottom line is, you know, as Kemp said back in the day, I would have loved for Trump to win, but he didn't. That's basically his stance. Now, if you remember, the, la- the way this played out in 2020, uh, per- Kemp wasn't running for election. David Perdue was. He was running for re-election to the Senate. Now, that race went into a runoff and was, so there was still campaigning going on in that period between November and January. In that period, David Perdue, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what he believes, of course, but the, the talk has always been, he sort of calculated he needed Trump's support. So he was very, he kind of leaned the other way. He went, uh, kind of leaned into the uh, election being stolen and, and, and sided with Donald Trump on that matter and generally got Donald Trump's, you know, support at some, at some level. Now, now, that didn't wind up working out for him going back to the Senate, of course. Uh, but he then decided to run uh, for uh, governor. Now, I want to give you this this quote because something interesting happened here. Trump wound up recruiting David Perdue to run for uh, governor in Georgia. Uh, He wanted to have somebody to unseat Kemp. He does not like Kemp. He did not like the way he handled the election stuff. So he recruited Purdue, a good candidate, I mean, a guy who almost won a Senate seat to go up against Kemp. And I think a lot of people believed uh, the Trump endorsement was going to be the end of the story here and Purdue was going to win. Now, something happened, though, on the way uh, to that result. And here's one of the things uh, that experts are citing. Uh, as they look at why this primary is playing out the way it appears to be playing out. Many Republican voters interviewed at polling locations this month said that they believe fraud tainted the 2020 election and that they like Trump, yet they are exhausted by his singular obsession with it and are ready to move on. Raffensperger, of course, he's the secretary of state, and Kemp are also attracting more moderate Republicans in the Atlanta suburbs where who are no fans of the former president. So it's kind of interesting to see this because the polling now shows a 60 to 28 lead for Kemp over Purdue. And this is surprising. A lot of experts, I think when people saw that Donald Trump was, you know, it's one thing to get somebody who's opposing 
camp or one person who's on the side of election fraud. But they got a, you know, a mainstream candidate who seems to be able, who's already been elected statewide in Georgia. This is a person This is not some just like, you know, uh, fringe character here. Uh, however, he has not been able to make a dent in this. And it's been pretty fascinating to watch this play out. Now, of course, the media is only focused on it because from the Trump perspective. But it will be interesting that the Georgia voters who saw Kemp and seem to be, at least in my eyes, pretty frustrated with him back in the day are seemingly embracing him, Uh, at least in the polls. He's up 60 to 28. The question here is, will Kemp hit 50 percent? It's not necessarily who's going to win tomorrow. But if Kemp falls below 50 percent, there will be a runoff on June 21st. And that this is also going on with Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, who really was the face of saying this was a secure election in Georgia. A lot of people did not like that. He wound up putting a pretty serious uh, contender for that role. And they look like they're about tied, most likely going to a runoff there. Um, However, we can tell you, Stacey Abrams. Uh, even though she's telling everybody the state she lives in is the worst state, uh, she is running unopposed. So she's got a race. She can finally win. Isn't that great? By the way, I want to do something here, and this is something I want to bring back from time to time. Stu does time travel. That's right. Every once in a while, I want to time travel. I want to go back in the past. And I want to look at a story that was a big story for a while, and then everybody seemed to kind of forget about it. And that's perplexing to me, because we have these big debates about what might happen in the future, and built into that debate is the idea that people want to see what that actually is, what happens in the future when these events happen. Do you remember when we were told the Georgia election reforms were going to make it impossible for minorities to vote? Oh my gosh, they're not going to be able to vote. They're not going to be able to vote by mail. They're not going to be able to vote absentee. Minorities may never vote again because of these Georgia laws. Do you remember all the businesses pulling out of the state of Georgia? Do you remember Major League Baseball moving its all-star game to Colorado because they just couldn't be in a state that was going to prevent all of these minorities from voting? So how did all of that work out after all? Let's look at the facts. On the Republican side, according to the Secretary of State's office, there were 453,929 early votes and 29,220 absentee votes so far this primary season. The absentee votes will keep coming in through Election Day on Tuesday. This is compared with just 153,000 early votes and 14,795 absentee voters during the last pre-pandemic midterm in 2018. So the voting went up on the Republican side from 153,000 to 453,000. Yeah, but of course, those are all white people. There's no such thing as a minority Republican. Those are all white people in Georgia. How about the Democrats? Well, the Democrats have seen a similar surge. In 2022, there were 337,245 early votes and 31,704 absentee votes, compared with only 134,542 early votes and 13,051 absentee votes in 2018. So from 134,000 to 337,000, that seems to be a massive increase in early voting. I was told they were shutting it down, but maybe those were all white Democrats because they do exist. There's no minority Republicans, but there are white Democrats. What about minorities overall? According to figures released by the Georgia Secretary of State, as of yesterday, May 18th, 102,000 and in 56 more black voters have cast early votes in this year's primary elections than in 2018. This is more than three 
times the number of blacks casting early votes than in 2018. I mean, this completely disproves a year of fighting. A year of arguing about what this law was going to do has been thrown out the window and nobody's bothered to notice other than National Review and a couple of other places. No one ever pays the price for drumming up all this baseless fear. No one ever checks back. No one ever gets in the time machine and goes back and reminds you, hey, remember these idiots talking about this stuff before? Well, Guess what? None of the stuff they worried, uh, were worried about actually happened. All right, let's move through the other races here quickly as we get to the end of our preview for tomorrow's election. We do have something going on in Texas. It's a runoff. Uh, the main attraction is Ken Paxson versus George P. Bush for attorney general. Paxson has been, we've had him on the show on radio a bunch of times. He's, he's been very aggressive uh, as an AG. He has, uh, he's very much liked by conservatives. He's had to deal with the, uh, allegations of corruption. Uh, then you have George P. Bush, who's kind of the final test of the Bush legacy in Texas here. Paxton is a favorite in this race. Uh, not a sure thing, though. We'll watch that one tomorrow. In Arkansas, not a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Probably the most interesting part of it is the Republican nominee will be named tomorrow and, of course, the probably the most likely uh, governor in Arkansas, which likely will be Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You, of course, remember her as uh, the second press secretary, right? It was, uh, it was Sean Spicer and then into uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and she is now taking over the mantle that her dad used to hold as governor of Arkansas. Alabama's really interesting. Um, you have a retiring senator, uh, Richard Shelby, stepping away, and you have a, a three-way race that has developed in uh, to replace him. You have Katie Britt, who is uh, uh, kind of you know uh, giving broad. Let's 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 define these candidates by what people who don't like them say. So basically, you have Katie Britt, who was uh, a former Sh uh, Shelby chief of staff. People are calling her the establishment candidate, right? She's the one that's coming out there. She used to work for the guy who has the office. She has his endorsement, and she's the establishment guy. Then you have uh, Mike Durant. Uh, Mike is, he was actually one of the pilots in the Black Hawk Down uh, incident, if you remember that from years ago, big military guy. Uh, people, conservatives who don't like him are kind of calling him from the McCain wing of the party. I don't know if that's fair. He's got General Flynn's endorsement. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, you know, if you care about that, you got that going on for him. Uh, the third is Mo Brooks. Now, Brooks uh, was first endorsed by Donald Trump. Then Donald Trump came in in March and looked, I, I, People will say looked at the polls and saw Mo Brooks in third place by a large margin and pulled his endorsement. Now, Trump's argument for this was basically that that Mo Brooks had gone woke, which I don't know. I mean, Mo Brooks is the least woke. He's in this in this analogy. He's asleep. He's not woke. Uh, he's asleep and proudly asleep. He does not want to be woke at all. I do not think of Mo Brooks as woke at all. He did say at one point in a rally, hey, you know, um, we now need to move need to move past the 2020 election. And that apparently, I guess, angered Trump for whatever reason, uh, thinking that he wasn't on his side. And so he pulled his endorsement from him. And he was in third place. And everyone kind of said, all right, looks like he just doesn't want to be endorsing a guy who's going to lose and probably finish behind two other people. Well, uh, Mo Brooks does have a bunch of other endorsements, however. Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, the Club for Growth, Freedom Works as well. And 
It's fascinating because the poll taken immediately after Trump pulled his endorsement looked like this. Uh, Durant was at 33 percent, Britt at 21 percent and Brooks at 16 percent. That's when Trump pulls his endorsement. Well, the most recent poll looks totally different. Britt at 31, Brooks all the way up to 29, and Durant 24. So oddly, Mo Brooks struggled mightily when he had Trump's endorsement and then has won Trump voters back after he lost the endorsement, which makes, it blows your mind. It makes, none of this makes any sense. This is what's so fun about this time of year. No, nothing makes any sense. The winner, of course, is not gonna be named tomorrow because they also have a runoff system. It will go into a runoff. It's just a matter of who comes in first and who comes in second to see who's in that runoff. We will see what goes on there tomorrow. I will say, no matter what happens in this race, Mo Brooks will still have the greatest mic drop moment in cable news history. He's in the majority of the United States Senate. It goes up $1.8 trillion, and now it's up $2.8 trillion while he's president. You're it just keeps getting worse. You're simplifying the issues that were on the plate of the nation at that point. I mean, we were looking at going, re- reverting into a depression at that point. Everyone, the Fed well, I chairman, disagree that we but, were going into a depression, but go ahead. Do you have a degree in economics? Uh, yes, ma'am, I do. Highest honors. Okay. <laughs> Okay, it's still my favorite cable news clip of all time. Do you have an economics degree? Yes, ma'am. Highest honors. Okay. Look, the truth is that we are looking at what is quite possibly the greatest opportunity and maybe a generation for Republicans to grab control of our government and hopefully stop it from screwing all of our lives up over and over again. These primary races might not always give you the perfect candidates. But what Republicans need to do right now is try not to nominate people with, uh, you know, no spine at all and also try to nominate people that are not completely insane. And this can be a tough line to walk. Sometimes people are completely sane, but have a spine made of watery lime jello. Sometimes people have spines of steel, but are insane, completely insane, like the offspring of Kanye West and Charlie Sheen. And yes, men can get pregnant now, you hate monger. With any level, any level of competence, Republicans should win the House and the Senate. And all of this is given to them in a perfectly wrapped gift box with a bow on top from Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. and his shiny 39% approval rating. Apologies to our friend and Atlanta Falcons fan, Keith Malinak, for this analogy, but it's 28 to three and it's the late third third quarter here. Just run the ball and you can't lose. But the Republican Party makes the Atlanta Falcons seem like clutch overachievers in comparison. So to once again paraphrase Barack Obama's words about Joe Biden, never underestimate the Republican Party's ability to F things up. Right now, court packing is a real danger to our democracy. Uh, Make sure that you know about it. Uh, Make no mistake, court packing is basically a coup. Uh, The usual suspects, Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, are working overtime to to make a new radical plan to pack the Supreme Court become a reality. And if we don't stop them from installing four or more justices uh, so they can rig the system in their favor, it'll be catastrophic for our court, for our country, for our way of life. 
Uh, we've talked about this quite a bit. And as you see with, for example, the Roe versus Wade decision potentially on the horizon, you know how passionate the left is about this issue. That's why we need you to join First Liberty Institute. They're gathering a coalition of a million patriots to say no to court packing, no to the liberal agenda, no to the Supreme Court coup. Franklin Graham, former U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese, Dr. James Dobson, the Family Policy Alliance, the Heritage Foundation, over 400,000 people like you as well are on board with this petition. Right now, you can go sign up your name. You can go to Supreme Coup. That's a C-O-U-P, SupremeCoup.com. Sign First Liberty's letter. It's SupremeCoup.com. Don't let them pack the courts. It's just too important. SupremeCoup.com. I'm so happy to welcome Gabby Beaumont-Smith to the program. She's a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and she's here to help us figure out why you can't get baby formula. Gabby, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Stu? Very well. Thanks for coming on. Um, I want to I want to start here because this is the, this is the United States. It's 2022. This does not seem like a problem we should be having. I understand that. Look, you know, COVID has complicated things. There are some things that are out of the control of policymakers, but. When you dive into this issue, when you really look beyond that initial layer and the recall, which obviously contributed, you get to a policy structure, a trade uh, package that is just, to me, completely insane. Can you start with us talking about why we just can't import, let's say, European baby formula, where they seem to have plenty of it? Yeah, absolutely. It's very difficult to import baby formula from Europe and not really for a good reason. Um, there are high tariffs on baby formula imports uh, reaching up to 17.5%, although there are some more complex tariff rates. If, honestly, it's very confusing. I, I, I envy people who even try to import baby formula because some of it is in dollars per kilo and then there's a tariff rate percentage on top of that um, and all the while there are also tariff rate quotas that are measured in metric tons so then you have to do conversions of you know if the tariff is in per kilogram and then you have to convert it into what would it be because the quotas in metric tons so it's an absolutely very non-transparent mess mm -hmm. um and then you know, the, the U.S. just has these non-tariff barriers as a result of, you know, the Food and Drug Administration has strict regulations on baby formula imports, like on labeling, on, you know, reporting what's in your baby formula, um, as far as nutrients go, how, uh, what type of scooper is used. Um, it's just very difficult and costly to import baby formula. Yeah, you know, and, and I, uh, as someone who likes free trade and very little regulation on, on this stuff, uh, I'm very friendly and sympathetic to the, the, the lower tariff arguments here. But, you know, you could say, if you're on the other side of that, you could say, look, these are good intentions. We want to protect our kids. We're not, we, don't, we don't want things to come in here that aren't labeled properly. How do we know any of this stuff hits standards that we're comfortable with in the United States? Well, you're right that we definitely want to be protecting American kids. Um, so that's why I think we're looking to import from countries with stricter regulatory regimes like the European Union. I mean, there are things in European baby formula that um, 
or sorry, there are things in American baby formula that you're not allowed to have in European baby formula. <laughs> so in many ways, European baby formula is superior to American baby formula. So if, you know, especially in a crisis like we're seeing now, um, we should be looking to import European baby formula because in a lot of ways it's better. It's, it's, it's fascinating that we have somehow messed this up, that we won't, that we won't import the stuff that's actually better for us. I will say, too, it's not just I mean, because you look at this and this has been a, a thing that's gone on for a very long time where both sides of the aisle want to protect the U.S. dairy industry. And we've unfortunately seen this c come up in recent years as well under uh, the uh, USMCA, which was kind of the replacement for NAFTA that was praised, generally speaking, by Republicans, but had all sorts of things in it that make this particular uh, uh, issue that we're having with baby formula difficult to deal with, specifically how it relates with dairy and Canada. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there is a specific provision in the agriculture can, uh, annex of the USMCA that limits Canadian exports of baby formula to all countries. So that includes the US. Um, so not only can Canada um, export only a certain amount globally of baby formula, if they exceed that threshold, then an export tax is levied on, on the excess of four Canadian dollars and 25 cents per kilogram. And again, the quota on the uh, baby formula exports from Canada is in metric tons. Um, <laughs> so it's... It's very confusing and it's extremely costly. There's no incentive for Canada to export baby formula because it's such a small quota that they have to export globally um, that that they're not incentivized, especially for the U.S. market, to go through the regulatory process to establish uh, market access in the U.S. Um, and then pay any kind of export tax on on top of uh, any you know excess exports that they they export to the U.S. You know, it, it's I don't know if I'm in the, I'm very much a typical American and proud of that. Um, but it's like, you know, part of me thinks, OK, we're in a crisis. I understand that normally you wouldn't want to pay extra tariffs, but like. When we want something here in America, especially the government, they'll pay pretty much any price to get it. Why can't we overcome these hurdles when we're sitting in the middle of a crisis like this? Yeah, if if tariffs were just the issue, I think that you would see Americans paying for the tariffs to get baby formula because they need baby formula. Um, but the tariffs aren't the only problem. It's the FDA regulations, um, you know, in order to gain market access to the U.S. If, for baby formula, you have to provide the FDA with uh, the uh, a very detailed explanation of what's in the baby formula, how it was developed, uh, all of the clinical trials that you went through. And um, then you have to have the FDA come and inspect your facilities. And then the FDA will take samples of the baby formula that you produce and test it themselves. And then once you've made a contract with a retailer, say Walgreens, um, that retailer has to provide at least three months notice to the FDA that they will begin selling this baby formula. So it's not exactly a, a quick process that you can go through so that you can get baby 
baby formula on the shelves quickly for Americans to buy. Incredible. I mean, it just it just doesn't seem possible. Um, is it true that there have been incidents where people are trying to ship this stuff in from Europe in particular and they're actually seizing it at, at ports? They're actually blocking it from coming in the country. Yes, that is true. So um, many European baby formula manufacturers don't want to go through this process to be registered with the FDA. So, But those rules don't apply for your personal use. So if I personally wanted to buy baby formula from Europe, I could go online to a European you know, third-party seller and buy baby formula and have it shipped to the US for myself. But once it uh, reaches the border, if the labels are not in English, for example, the FDA can seize it on the grounds that it's incorrectly labeled. Even though on the website that I bought it off of, everything was in English. I know exactly what's in it. I, I know exactly how to... Um, give it to my baby. The sellers usually provide a conversion chart because obviously Europe uses the metric system. Um, so you can, you know how much to be giving your baby and how to provide it to your baby safely. Um, but just if it's not in English at the border, they can seize it. And it's also up to them. They have full discretion. They can let it in if they want to, or they can decide to seize it. Mm, yeah, absolutely <laughs> incredible. Okay. Um, can you also talk to me about the, the market? for this stuff because part of me thinks, okay, well, why don't we just have more production of this going on here? And one of the reasons for this is one of the largest, in fact, the largest purchaser of baby formula is that, you know, it's it's the government. The government is buying this and it's going through the, uh, the food stamp or WIC program and it is confusing the market and making it very difficult to expand production. Can you kind of walk us through how that works? Yes. So basically, the government um, provide or makes these companies bid for exclusive um, an exclusive contract for a state. So then, once that company wins the contract, they become the sole provider of baby formula for WIC recipients in that state. And Abbott, for example, has contracts in 31 states. So they are the sole provider of baby formula in 31 states out of 50 in the US. Um, and so this has created quite a lot of concentration in the market, and it has reduced the number of factories that the uh, these companies need to make baby formula. So when one of them goes offline, um, that creates a significant supply shock uh, that, that is exacerbating the crisis that we are seeing now. Yeah, and it's and it's true too. They're they're bidding when they have these bidding. They want to get these contracts, so they're bidding so low, but to almost lose money just to get the contracts because they think they can get on store shelves. This puts yeah, yeah this puts the uh, the American people in an impossible position if a crisis like this uh, goes on. And I feel like there's just never a point where these things get examined afterward. We just wind up uh, throwing our hands up and saying, oh, that was a tough time. Uh, Gabby Beaumont-Smith, a policy analyst for the Cato Institute. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Gab about trade. Gabby, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. If you attend a small dinner party of typically very liberal upper income Angelinos, it is not uncommon to hear parents who each have a trans kid mm. having a conversation about that. Mm. What are the odds of that happening 
in Youngstown, Ohio. Not so high. If this spike in trans children is all natural, hmm. why is it regional? Hmm. Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. <laughs> uh, that was, of course, uh, Bill Maher's last show. So I hope you enjoyed doing that over the last 20 years. Uh, no, it's interesting because Bill Maher just doesn't seem to care. Now, he's on, he just got re-signed to a contract. He's on a pay TV network. And he's saying stuff like that. And look, he brings up really logical points here. This is not, it was not hate-filled. It's being presented that way in a lot of the media coverage over it. But really, he's just saying, like, look, something else is going on here. And it's a point we've brought up on this program as well. It's fascinating to look at. And you're seeing this more. Comedians seem to be leading the way on this stuff, questioning these uh, sacred cows a little bit. And that's what comedians are supposed to do. Dave Chappelle, of course, has been on this bandwagon as well. And he got attacked on stage for it. And you might say, well, we don't know why he got attacked on stage. Yes, we do. We know it from the guy who attacked him on stage who said his jokes triggered him because he identifies as bisexual. And he wanted to know, he wanted Chappelle to know what he said was triggering. And obviously, I mean, you could obviously tweet the person and say, hey, your comments have triggered me. Or you could take a gun slash knife and attack him on stage. A gun knife. You know, you could, you could do that as well. And so there's, you go one of the two ways. You know, you either maybe write an angry letter, angry uh, tweet, or a gun knife. Uh, and you go after Dave Chappelle on stage. Uh, Chappelle, uh, <laughs> you know, he apparently him, that didn't trigger him. He took it in stride and, and they laughed about it later on. Yet, for some reason, the jokes triggered this guy, and that's, that's a story somehow. Uh, before we go, I want to give you a, a show I'm really looking forward to, because we talk about all the crap in entertainment uh, all the time. I'm really looking forward to a movie called Jerry and Marge Go Large. This is, <laughs> this is coming out. It's got uh, Brian Cranston in it. Who, you know, anything Brian Cranston is in, I'm going to go uh, watch. But this one's coming out. I think it's going on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, but it's a story, and I think we've told the story before about this couple who figured out some hole in the lottery. And, you know, there's a long explanation as to how they figured it out. But then they decided to basically just start buying lotto tickets like crazy when certain standards were hit. And they wound up legally just bilking the lottery for hundreds of thousands, I think millions of dollars in the end, just because they figured out the math better than the lottery companies did. And if you think government is so bad they can't even screw up gambling well surprise surprise they actually can well if you've just made millions and millions of dollars off a government math error in the lottery you might be looking for a new home and if you are you might need millions of dollars these days because the markets have been going crazy for a long time and we're starting to see the interest rates creep up and we're starting to see people getting a little more hesitant at paying those top dollar prices. But people are still making lots of money on their homes. If you're thinking about cashing out, maybe you've had a home for a long time, has a lot of equity. Uh, if you are thinking about getting into a market like this, which can be dangerous, you can get attached to a home and maybe pay a little bit too much for it. This is the time to have the best real estate agent you can find on your side. Uh, we are talking about our biggest investment. We are talking about realestateagentsitrust.com to find the best agent to, to represent you in that huge investment that you're making in not only where you live, but also your financial future. They work with the best agents in every market. They do their own homework. They make sure that these agents are qualified and they're the best ones you can find. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find that person. Realestateagentsitrust. Com. Well, we all know Saturday Night Live has not been funny in years, possibly decades, 
Case in point, it was just announced that a handful of main cast members are jumping ship this year before, you know, things get any worse. I suppose Pete Davidson does need more time to focus on his Kanye problems. Mm -hmm. They lost Pete Davidson and Kate McKinnon and someone else I kind of recognize from the show. I think Keenan Thompson is the only one on the show now. Uh, He's in every sketch. He's the only one who's ever funny in any sketch. And I think he's the only person left on the show. You can expect to see uh, more and more of this. I think more departures from awful left-wing programming will be happening, just like the entirety of the CNN Plus staff. Hmm. But you know who isn't hemorrhaging talent right now? Aha! Blaze TV. We're just getting started. Don't miss your chance to stay dialed into the 2022 elections. Obviously, a really important time to have conservative programming, people who are not going to lie to you constantly about what's coming up in the midterms. Stay here for that. You got to stay here for Joe Biden's gaff-driven Armageddon. Elon Musk's conservative revival seems to be happening. We'll check into that as well. Uh, when you subscribe to Blaze TV, you get all of that. And right now, you can head to blazetv.com slash stew to sign up for an account of your own. If you use my name, Stu, as the promo code, you're going to save 10 bucks. Plus, it lets them know that you like this stupid show and all the other non-stupid shows on this network. It's blazetv.com slash stew. Head there now and use the promo code stew to save 10 bucks. Okay, so here's what happened. Look, I am a parent, okay? I have a couple small children, nine and 10 years old, and I want the best for them, but I don't expect the best for them. We can't even feed babies in this country. I mean, I don't expect to get the best possible stuff for them. All I want is some basics. I'd like them to to maybe be able to get food. I'd like them to maybe be able to not be taught that their skin color is the most important thing about them. I'd like them to maybe not be taught uh, about uh, all you know crazy gender stuff that they probably won't ever understand. Maybe they don't need to understand that at eight or nine years old. And I'd like, I'd like as a basic line that the pop stars that they might sing along with not be dating Osama bin Laden. It's a basic, basic question here. And yet on Twitter this entire weekend, a trending picture was Ariana Grande kissing Osama bin Laden. And here it is. There's the picture. You can see it clear as day. I mean, people were sharing this. They couldn't believe it. Here's a guy who blows up the Twin Towers. He arranges for all this to happen and he gets to date Ariana Grande or is perhaps punished. I don't know. I don't know how how wonderful Ariana Grande would be on an everyday basis. I think I watched the show she was on on Disney Plus with the kids at one point, and she has the strangest, I think it's her, the strangest accent of any character on any television show in U.S. history. I, I ask you after the show, go over to YouTube and look for Ariana Grande on whatever show she was on when she was, uh, you know, like on Disney. She's doing some weird accent. I don't know what it is. I don't know what she's trying to do. I don't know how she maintained fame after the show aired. It is a bizarre bizarre moment. However, you might be shocked to hear that that picture was actually photoshopped. And here's the real one. It's uh, that's that's her with Osama and that's her with her rapper boyfriend, I guess, at the time. Um, Now, you might go back to the Osama one for a second, if we could. You might. Be suspicious to, I can't believe Osama bin Laden is wearing the baggy sweatshirt and baggy jeans. It just doesn't seem like a look for a terrorist. But um, you, yes, it was actually a, a rapper who actually passed away, the late rapper Mac Miller, who I know I, I own all of his, uh, his hit. And, um, you know, I think he's, he's, he's wonderful. And uh, so uh, RIP Mac Miller and 
uh, Osama bin Laden, RIP at the bottom of an ocean somewhere. Um, I don't know. Okay, so uh, before we go, we're going to tell you uh, again, you might have missed this announcement uh, as, right before we uh, left. We had our 500th episode a few episodes ago, and we announced our 500th episode Power Hour. It's coming up on July 8th. Now, you can be part of this one. You can come and view it live, hang out with us, maybe have a couple of beverages as well. If you choose, that's at stewdoespowerhour.com. Stewdoespowerhour.com. Sign up if you want to check out the Power Hour live or just want more information on it. Stewdoespowerhour.com. Check it out now. We will see you tomorrow.